Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to The Educated Home Buyer, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and financing. Last week, we discussed the idea of home ownership and its foundation in building long-term generational wealth. But today, we are going to discuss the question of buying now or waiting. Josh, question that we get every single week on YouTube Live show that we do, get the question a lot from home buyers I'm working with. Thoughts on 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 buying now versus waiting? Yeah, well, you know, um, we recorded the first episode of the podcast here uh, a few days ago, and on that we talked uh, from a different angle: is um, buying a home important? Is home ownership important and right? And we talked in that episode that at any given time, plus or minus sixty-five percent of Americans own their home. So, for the majority of adult American households, home ownership is beneficial, leads to greater wealth. Um, and you have the emotional reasons of people wanting to own a home, nesting, being able to make your, your man cave or your baking kitchen, whatever you want in a home, you can do that. So that was really the big picture of what it looks like financially and emotionally to own your home and why do most people over a lifetime choose to become homeowners. Today, we're going to dig in and go much more specifically into the question of if you've decided or you're thinking that home ownership is right for you, um, either buying your first or your next home is 2022 a good time to buy. Um, we're going to go deep dive on this because it's a hot topic, whether you're looking in you know, your Google feed and seeing the news headlines, whether you're in YouTube, um, anywhere you go, it's a big topic that a lot of people are talking about. So today we're going to jump in, Jeb. We're going to cover three big macro pieces of this. One is affordability. Affordability is an important issue. Um, we're going to talk about the potential for a crash. You know, we talked about the YouTube doom and gloomers for the last two years. We've been saying home prices are going to crash. Home prices are going to crash. Uh, we don't believe that to be true. We're going to go through the reasons why. But what does it look like uh, moving forward? We can't continue appreciating at this rate forever. Then the last thing we are going to circle back to probably the most important point of is uh, are you at the right point in your life to consider home ownership here in 2022 and the questions you need to answer for yourself so with that in mind jeb you want to jump in and kind of kick us off with affordability yeah let's talk about affordability so affordability is is a big topic at the moment because of where prices have gone right prices have risen um, and unfortunately over the last four to five weeks we've actually seen interest rates rise you know through 2020 2020 2021 a good portion of that, we saw interest rates in the low 3% range, right? It was it was one of the factors that allowed so many home buyers to purchase property during this time, right? I mean, so that, that was driving the market. We saw 19% appreciation last year nationwide, depending on where you were located in the United States, you might have seen 25% in some markets. And even this year, you know, we're mid-February at the moment, towards the end of February, and we're already looking at five, six percent appreciation in the market. So, is it a good time to buy? I mean, Orange County last year, where we're located, Josh, I read an article recently, twenty-six percent, you know, higher cost 
to of living, if you will, this year versus last year because of the median home price going up, because of interest rates going up, it costs about 26% more to buy that same home this year because of those things. So that's a that's a piece of it. So let's talk about affordability a little bit. Like, what does it mean to be affordable, right? I mean, we often hear people saying, Josh, homes aren't affordable. So, so let's let's talk about it. A thousand percent. So there's really three pieces that come into play here. And you talked about two of them. Um, one is home prices. So we know that really since 2010, 2011, when we kind of finally hit bottom in home prices, we're going on 10, 11 years of increasing home prices. Some years, um, low single digits, some years um, into the teens, like we saw last year, whether who's, depending on whose measure you look at, 15%, 16%, 19%, depending on whose measure and where you're located. Uh, but we've seen appreciation for 10 or 11 years. So anything getting more expensive should decrease affordability, but we've got a couple of other variables in there. Um, you talked about interest rates. For the most part, we've had really low interest rates through the last 10 years. Um, you know, Probably the highest level we saw was the high fours. The best level we saw was the mid twos. Um, but the, the last piece of that equation is what happens to incomes. Incomes generally increase with inflation over time. So we've had very low inflation until quite recently, two to 3%. So uh, wage gains of about two to 3% doesn't sound like a lot. Over 10 years, wages are 30% higher. So if rates had stayed the same and home prices had stayed the same, we would have 30% more buying power because our income went up. And because it's leveraged, you actually would have had a little bit more, uh, more than that in terms of buying power. But we have to look at the interplay of all three of those things. And probably the most important thing, um, in 2020, when home price appreciation really picked off, not at the big, kicked off, not at the very beginning of the year, because of course we saw COVID, there was a big pause. What was it, March, April? You, know, you couldn't do open houses. Buyers were going, hey, I'm worried about staying alive in a pandemic right now. I'm not worried about buying a home. I was but worried like, about my career. Yeah, no, a thousand percent. <laughs> I mean, to be honest. It kicked off a new career for you in YouTube. You you had a very yeah, tiny no, YouTube yes. channel prior, yeah. prior to that. And that uh, allowed you to pivot and go that direction. But everyone is going like, I don't know what the hell's going on. Buying a house isn't the most important thing. But second half of 2020, first half of 2021, Home prices were going up at a pretty good clip, but interest rates were going down. So we had not seen a de decrease in affordability till about late spring, early summer last year when rates had leveled off. So we'd sort of uh, absorbed the benefit of lower interest rates and home prices were getting to a point where affordability was lower than what we saw in 2019 but still quite affordable. So now what are we talking about today is, is 2022, where are we at? Um, affordability is becoming an issue. And I have the, I have the chart here I wanted to dig into um, and, and just reference, it really depends on where you're at. So Jeb and I are here in California. In California, affordability um, has taken a pretty big hit. Right now, the payment to income ratio in the state of California for a new buyer is 43%. That's very, uh, it's on the high end of what most mortgage programs will even allow. So if you look at it, you say, hmm, affordability is becoming an issue in, in California. Now let's look at some other states. Texas is a big one. Lots of Californians leaving, heading over to Texas. Texas, the payment to income ratio is 22.5%. Um, so just really depends on where you're at. You're in Florida, 29.3%. Louisiana, 21%. Um, Georgia looks like you're at 24%. So it doesn't, 
uh, it, it's it's becoming problematic in higher cost areas. It's not fun for a buyer anywhere to say, hey, it's like, what did you say, 26% more expensive now yeah. than two years? So those numbers are the same, no matter what state you're in, considering that across the board, home prices have gone up relatively similar amounts in most desirable markets. Interest rates have gone up the same amounts everywhere. So you're still looking at it and going, hey, 26% more expensive than it was a year or two ago. But if you're in an area where the affordability is still high, um, buying is probably still a pretty easy decision. You know, Jeb, one of the things you were talking about uh, earlier when you and I were batting this around is where, where what are the markets that you were seeing there uh, where you can literally buy a home and have a lower payment than uh, than what the mortgages are? You know, Birmingham, Alabama was one of them. Um, I actually, I, I have the article here in front of me. I'll, I'll pull it up. But while we're talking about that, I want to I want to ask you a question while I, I look that up. Um, you know, what do you say to the people that say, wages aren't growing at the same rate as home prices at the same rate as home prices right they're not supposed to but but let's address that because i think it's important people are saying home prices are appreciating at 19% or 20% or whatever the number is my income's not appreciating at that number how does this make sense how how does affordability work in in that regard well they're 100% correct affordability wouldn't be decreasing if there weren't a component there they don't need to be equal because you're using a debt to income ratio there to qualify and we're not at 100%. So they don't need to be one to one um, from, from that perspective, but you're definitely seeing that wages have not kept pace with home price inflation. And over the last six or eight months, they haven't kept pace with inflation period. We'll see what that looks like going forward, um, but wage growth is likely to still remain good. And um, the, the $24 million question for us is, when does does home price growth decelerate and, and come back more in the line? But the big answer to your question is they don't have to be one to one in lockstep because you have a debt to income ratio that you're qualifying for. But the increases that we've seen in home prices have decreased affordability and a borrower's ability to qualify. And like you and I uh, were talking earlier, uh, I had three borrowers that I spoke to yesterday wanting to buy homes. And these are not people that do not qualify. They qualify, but the homes in their areas are now, you know, 50, 70, $100,000 beyond what they qualify for. So it's an important thing for us to keep an eye on. Um, and, and again, we're the sort of the tip of the spear here in California, just because our home prices across the board are so much higher um, than than other states in the country. No, and, and to, to reference back, um, Birmingham, Alabama was one, uh, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, kind of top the list there where it, it's it's most advantageous for a buyer to try to purchase a property versus rent in those markets just because of affordability. So just, you know, not every market is California, fortunately for those that uh, that are spread across the U.S. there. Well, there's two there's two pieces to it, Jeb. Um, right. I don't know so much yep. about Birmingham, but you're talking about Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh has had a long run of very low home price increases, which you say, oh, that's good. It's great for affordability. Um, is that great for you as a homeowner? Um, in a perfect world, like we, we talk about this on, on the YouTube Live all the time. In a perfect world, we get about four to five 
5% home price increases every year. Over time, homes become less affordable, even with 4 to 5% inflation, but for uh, it, it's manageable so that we still have a large volume of people who can afford to get in on the entry level, which now allows your first level move up buyer, your first level move up buyer to move up into the luxury or semi-luxury levels. That's a healthy market. Um, when we get 15 to 20% appreciation one, two years in a row, it's not necessarily healthy. You get otherwise good borrowers priced out of the market. But what we were saying specifically is um, a market like Pittsburgh, if you're there and you like it and you want to live there, fantastic. Just know that you're probably not going to be like a Californian that's going to look up one day and have hundreds of thousands of dollars of home equity. You're going to buy in at a much more affordable level. Level. It's cheaper than renting. You're going to fix your payment. You're going to be paying that thing off over time so you can arrive at retirement with a paid off home. But you're going to have to focus a lot more um, on your retirement savings in terms of building your financial security versus real estate. So pros and cons. Neither one is good or bad. It's just those prices where, where your mortgage payment is very similar to your rent are lower appreciation markets over the long haul. Well, and one benefit you didn't mention about living in Pittsburgh is once you pay your house off, you can actually use whatever you're paying towards your house to become a member at Oakmont and you can play golf at Oakmont. There you go. It, it, great. I mean, it's a, it sounds like a win-win. Um, so, so let's talk about it here before we move on to, to, to potential crash or, or the, the idea of a crash here and talk about rates for a moment, because people are often saying, you know, or asking the question rather, is it better to, to buy at a lower price with a higher rate or a higher price and a, at a potentially lower rate. So at the moment, what we're seeing is we're seeing higher prices and kind of higher rates. Now, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, things might have changed a little bit. But at the moment, that's what we're we're seeing. But let's talk historically speaking from from your point of view, just to kind of get it out there and, and you know, give people some. In In the past, high interest rates have led to higher home prices but we weren't starting at such high home prices and lower affordability. So I don't know that we'll see that correlation if rates were to continue increasing. And I say if, because I am not convinced that that is the direction that we're going. So right. if you're looking at buying a home in 2022, I would count on elevated rates and rates possibly being higher than they are today. As we record this here um, in February of 22, Rates for most loans are in the, the low fours. Um, if you're looking at a government loan, FHA or VA, mid to high threes. But that's a, a solid percent higher than it was two or three months ago. So people look at that and they go, oh, here we go. We're normalizing. Rates are going back to normal. There's no such thing as normal. Um, for a million different reasons, and we will cover that in depth on another podcast because that's a 30, 40 minute discussion. But the quick thing that we always like to point out since 1982, when the Fed under Fed Chair Volcker um, did everything within their power and broke the back of inflation, we've seen interest rates go not in a straight line down, but in a straight channel down. So within that channel, over a six, eight, 12 month period, even a two year period, rates can go up and they hit the top of that channel. But every time they've hit the top, they go down and they set a new low. So what we've seen over the last 40 years is every time rates go up, they set a lower high than the last time rates went up. And every time they go down, they set a lower low than the last time they went down. So we're gonna look, we're gonna see what happens here. Do we break that 40 year trend and does that down channel and interest rates give way? Um, I'm not convinced it will. Inflation looks really gnarly right now, but we talk about it all the time interest rates are higher because inflation is higher. Why is inflation higher? 
because we had a ton of stimulus thrown into the economy during the pandemic. For the first year of the pandemic, everyone's locked at home and couldn't spend any money. So 21, when things first open up, and now here in 2022, U.S. households have more spendable cash. So we still have supply chain issues because of the pandemic. We have more money to spend, and it's leading to really hot inflation. I don't think we're going to see it. You know, the Fed gets in a bunch of trouble for calling it transitory. Um, I think people heard them say that and thought it meant two or three months. It could right. mean two or three years. But I'd still believe that long downtrend is in place because of bigger, longer-term structural issues. So if that's the case, we will continue to have the tailwinds behind the housing market of lower interest rates. And even in the low fours, although it's a horrific shock for people that were getting used to two and three quarter, two and a half interest rates, um, four and a quarter is, is a really good interest rate historically. No. And, and and so I think some of the things that you just mentioned there are going to kind of take us into the next thing that I want to talk about. Right. So, you know, we've, we've talked about affordability. Now let's talk about the idea of a crash. Right. Uh, everybody wants to talk about crash. Right. A lot of the people that are buying now either are buying a home for maybe the second time because they bought one during the last debacle, maybe lost it to foreclosure or had to short sell or whatever, or part of the millennial generation. You know, they saw their parents go through it. You know, it was this big media headline for a number of years. I mean, it obviously set the precipice of, of what we're experiencing now with regards to the finance industry and and how it can be more difficult to get loans and in certain regards and just some things like that. But let's talk about the idea of a crash, right? You and I talk all the time, supply and demand. That's what drives any market. It, it's what drives anything really with, with regards to prices. And, and so I'm just going to kind of throw it your way here. Um, while COVID has changed some things, the pandemic changed the idea of, of the work environment, which is you know putting pressure on supply, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. Let's, let's just take a flashback, just, just a small little minute here or two and talk about what loans look like. In in 06, 07, right before the 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 top in the market at that time. I was doing loans then. I know exactly what it looked like, but let's talk about it in, in some more detail to give people, you know, something to look at. And then we can talk about the differences in that versus now and then kind of, you know, what is driving the market now versus what was driving that market then. We could do an hour discussion just on this alone. Oh, so let me try let me yep. let me try to be as brief as possible. Um, let's talk about the three people that I talked to yesterday. The market just passed them by, by fifty dollars to $100,000. What would we have done in 2005? What would have been their options in 2005? First of all, one of those folks qualified just fine that I talked to yesterday, but they didn't have a debt payment. Well, cool. In 2005, you didn't need a down payment. 100% financing, whether it's an 80-20, a single 100% loan, lots of options for you to not put any money down. Um, the other folks who didn't have enough income, you could say, well, I can instead of buy a three-bedroom house, I can buy a two-bedroom house, or I can go buy a three-bedroom condo. Um, in 2005, buyers didn't need to do that. They would just say, oh, put me on a stated income loan and just say that I make more money. So you can see that there was no cap on in terms of, of qualifications on what people could buy. They didn't have to have a down payment. They didn't have to actually make the money to qualify. So flash forward here to, to anything post 2010, we have ability to repay rules. You have to document your ability to repay the loan. And we don't- What? You gotta show crazy. that you can actually crazy. pay back the loan? What are we Absolutely. doing here? 
Yeah, you you would thought that we didn't need laws to pass uh, to make lenders uh, document the borrower's ability to repay, but we have those now. And for the most part, depending on the loan program, you're going to be only able to spend 43 to 50% of your gross income on your housing payment. So everyone that's bought a home in 21, so far in 22, people can look and say, hey, that's crazy. Why would anyone pay that price? The people that are paying those prices are making a down payment. They're putting their money, they're pushing their chips uh, into the center of the table, and they're documenting that they have the ability to make that monthly payment. So when you flash back, why was 2007, 2008 such a monstrous crash? No one that came in in the late stages had any skin in the game. So they, they didn't put their own money down. They may have had a little bit of equity of appreciation that had gone up in the property before we saw a downturn, but they didn't put any of their own money in and they didn't actually qualify. The best story I like to use, the very first home I flipped in late 2008 post crash. We bought it at a trustee sale. We went um, to, to get the keys or to explain to the gentleman that he was gonna need to move out of the home. And he informed us that he has, uh, this is my house, I have a lawyer, the lawyer is gonna take care of this. And I showed him the deed, I go, there's no lawyer fixing this, I own the house. I said, more importantly, let's talk about this. How much did you pay for the house? I already knew, but he said, okay, I paid 685. Cool, how much money did you put down? I didn't put anything down. We did an 80-20. He said, cool, what type of loan did you have? Well, it was a 228. It was fixed for two years and then it switched to an adjustable. And bad mortgage brokers, subprime lenders at that time were running around telling people, no problem, it'll be worth more in two years. We'll refi you into a better loan. So obviously his home had dropped in value. He couldn't refinance. He didn't have any equity. He didn't put any money into it. And the payment had skyrocketed because it switched from the teaser rate to the long-term rate. So I said, well, how much are you paying here if you, when you, if you make your payment? It was it's $5,600 a month. I said, cool. I said, you see that house across the street? Said, yeah. I said, is that nicer than your house? Yeah, it's a lot nicer than my house. I said, you know what you could rent that house for? $2,000 a month. So you're telling me that you want to fight with a lawyer to fight me to save this house that you have no equity in, you put no money down on, that you would have a $5,600 a month payment when you could go rent the one across the street that's nicer for $2,000. And right. a light bulb went off in his head and he goes, that's stupid. I, I, and, and that's what everyone did. Everyone yep. in that same situation said, I'm gonna walk away. All I've lost is my credit. In three, five, seven years, my credit will be healed and I can buy again. And in the meantime, I get to live in a nicer house with a much lower house payment. So we don't have that right now. Rents are at all time high levels. So even in California, um, you know, uh, maybe you're saving 500 or $1,000 by renting the house in a neighborhood versus owning it, but you're not saving a huge amount of money. Um, we talked, you know, in at that time, the popular press loved to talk about there's never been a year where home prices went down nationally in the United States. And you're like, who cares? Like, I don't, I don't care about national home prices. I care about my about neighborhood. My house, right. If I'm in Texas, I care about Texas home prices. And I don't really care about Texas home prices. I care about Houston. I care about Fort Worth. I care about Waco, wherever I'm at. So when we looked at California, we're unique. We've had a cyclical market going all the way back to the seventies and we've had downturns where the market corrects. So it's kind of an important thing to talk about here, Jeb, the difference between a crash and a correction. A correction is home prices dropped 10 to 20% because they got a little bit ahead of themselves. A right. crash is what we saw in 2007, 2008, and they dropped 60, 70, 80% from, from where they were at. So there's no world in which we're going to have a crash. Depending on your market, 
we certainly could have a, a correction. And the more your market has appreciated and the lower the affordability, the more likely you are to have a correction. Now, one of my mentors, um, Jeb, a guy that I followed since 1997, who was saying buy California real estate hand over fist when everyone in 1997 said, we'll never see appreciation in California real estate again. Listened to a long webinar with him um, just this last weekend. And he said, there's a couple things that are different of, about this market. And what he thinks is likely to happen to, to have a big decrease in home prices. And he went back to every dip that we've had in California specifically, every correction and in the last crash, they were precipitated by a large amount of foreclosure inventory in the market. So in, in the little corrections, it was 30 to 40% of the market in the big crash. Um, the homes on the market accounted for 70 to 80% of available homes. For the reasons that you and I just talked about, that people actually qualified for these loans, they actually put their money down, and they've been sitting there and watching homes appreciate. They're sitting on a ton of equity. You know, the average loan to value in the United States, I believe, is like 47%. We do not have the recipe for a large amount of REO properties. So we don't have the recipe for a huge crash. Does that mean we couldn't have a correction? No, it just means there's no world in which a crash is coming. So if you're watching a YouTube video and you see some moron telling you home prices are going to drop 50%, cool. Tell me why. Tell me how. And again, part of what I want to say is we talk largely specifically about California. If you're listening to this and you're in another state, there's some things that you do need to look at. Um, in California, we, uh, especially Orange LA County, Bay Area, where it's fully built out, there is no room to build additional inventory. So again, you and I are sitting here talking about supply and demand. So supply is limited in those areas. Now, Which, if, you're, yeah. if you're in an area in another part of the country where they're building lots of new homes and have lots of available land, those supply constraints may not exist. So you, you want to look at your market and take that into consideration and make sure that builders aren't building as far as the eye can see where you're at, which, you know, Jeb, you can discuss where we're talking about, you know, how, how far are we behind nationwide on inventory required for the U.S. population? Yeah, no, I mean, that's one thing I did want to talk about here is, you know, the difference you, you mentioned the credit issues and, and loans adjusting and and the foreclosures and, and, and you know, people not being able to get credit due to guideline changes. You know, we, those are those were key drivers. But the other key driver was supply. There was 12 and a half months of supply of homes at that time. And for those of you listening to this, that might not mean anything, but let, let's just reference now right now nationwide we're sitting at about 1.6 months of supply so i mean it it's all relative right now depending on where you are like josh mentioned if there's a lot of homes available for sale your market's probably not going to be as crazy as it is here in southern california now for example 12 and a half months of supply at this time or at that time in in a partly due to a lot of foreclosures coming on the market but the other key driver at that time was overbuilding. There was construction in every major metropolitan city across the, the United States. I mean, at that time, I owned a property in South Florida, in Miami. And the number of condos that were going up in Miami at that time was just crazy. I mean, there were cranes all over the city. And so you were left with all of this supply. Well, after that, they came out and they put restrictions on these home builders from being able to do that again because of what it created that that you know those measures that they put in place at that time have continued to to be a problem 
you know, as we got closer to where we are now, right? Because now we're four to six million homes behind where we should be because of restrictions. In addition to that, you've got housing permits. You know, you, you can read the headlines. Housing permits are up or building permits are up or whatever. It's not about the number of permits being pulled. It's about completions. How many homes are actually being completed? Because if we're four to six million behind and they're on average building one and a half million a year, give or take, it's going to take just four years to keep up with current demand, not even increasing demand in, in home ownership. And that's, you know, they've got to deal with supply bottlenecks. They've got to deal with workers. They've got to deal with, you know, actually having, you know, I, I mentioned supply bottlenecks just, just to build the homes, but you've got to have the supplies to actually you know, furnish the homes, the dishwashers, the garage doors, the garage door openers, the rain gutters, the all of that stuff is a problem at the moment. And that is why for for the short term, like here in Southern California, you're not going to have a huge increase in, in the, you know, building, if you will, is not going to increase supply. Now, let's talk about foreclosures for a moment, Josh. You mentioned equity. The average homeowner in the United States at the moment has $185,000 of tappable equity. Tappable equity means on top of the 20% equity they, that they, they are required to have in order to actually access that equity. So the average homeowner has more than $185,000 equity in their property, $9.9 trillion worth of equity in the United States at the moment. So if somebody needs to sell their home because they can no longer afford the payment or you know they, they uh, did forbearance and, and now the forbearance is up and they can't deal with the terms, they're in a position to sell that property for market value, right? Because of, of lack of supply, they don't have to fire, sell it or do anything crazy. Uh, and, and they're actually walking away with cash. Now, they've got other problems on the other side of that of where do they go? Where do they rent? How much is it going to cost? But we're talking about the increase in supply. If somebody comes to the market at the moment that has equity in their property, again, that property is going to sell at market value. At the same time, if a property goes to a bank, a bank actually forecloses on it, which there are some of those, believe it or not, still out there. And the, trust me, I sold a lot of REOs back in 2009 to 2012 for Fannie Mae and, and Wells Fargo and, and the bigger banks at that time. And at the very beginning, because of the supply, the banks were, you could get a deal on some of these properties. You could actually get a property for less than market value. They weren't fixing them up. They weren't doing anything. They just, they wanted to get rid of the property because they had so much on their balance sheet. And, and at that time, as you, you know, I'm not sure if you, you were around or you remember, uh, but Bank of America like took over the assets of, of Countrywide, I believe is, was what happened. I think, I think the government told them, Hey, well, yeah, you're going well, to do, do this. You had to take it over. But what, what I'm getting at here is, is not only did Bank of America have their own assets they had to deal with that were upside down. They also had to deal with Countrywide. And then you had Chase Bank took over WAMU. And, and, and so th these banks had so much on their balance sheet. They just wanted to fire sell them. Well, towards the end, Supply was starting to tighten up a little bit. These banks realized, hey, if we just do a little bit of work to these properties, we change the carpet, we do some paint, spend a little bit of money, we can actually sell these properties for market value. And that's what happened. So I think if you do see any foreclosures come to the market that are true foreclosures, they're going to sell somewhere around the mar market value because banks know what they have on, in, on their hand, right? They're smart. They, they can look at the market and say there's no supply out there. And, and so any potential 
property coming to the market that has, you know, the potential of, of being underpriced is going to get a lot of attention and likely sell for market value, potentially even higher in those cases. So the idea of a crash at the moment isn't realistic. Now you've got low supply. We mentioned that, right? 1.6 months or so, uh, you know, at this time in the market, and that's going to change and that's going to vary depending on times of the year and, and other factors. But let's talk about Josh, what's driving the market right this minute, right? We've talked many, many times. It is supply and demand. I don't care what happens with rates. I don't care what happens with anything. The government doesn't matter. Unless supply increases, you've got a similar problem, right? Supply has to increase. Demand has to drop. The two have to do that or or one or the other and, and nothing changes, right? So what is driving supply? Who, who are the buyers at the moment buying properties, Josh? Well, millennials entering prime home buying age. So we've seen that that um, starting last year, right now, the peak age for first time home buyers is about 33, 34 years of age. That millennial generation, it has a big wave through 2024 every year of them hitting that. And not that everyone buys their first home at 33 or 34, some will do it at 35 or 36. So we probably have about a five year window here where the millennials, which are the biggest generation since baby boomers, are bringing a bunch of supply to market. And think about, again, the last downturn, all of that building was done because housing was hot and prices were high and builders were making a lot of money per unit selling came to market when the gen xers were hitting that prime home buying age the xers were a much smaller generation than the boomers before them so you didn't have this big demographic wave of a volume of buyers coming to the market and we had a lot of building right now we have a big demographic wave of people coming to the prime home buying age where they're starting families wanting to to put down roots wanting to have a roof over their head that they own at the same time that we have a four five six million dollar a million unit shortage of of homes nationwide so when when you look at that it's it's a recipe for homes prices remaining high now one last thing jeb on that we want to flash back to what's not happening everyone expected that the baby boomers were going to sell their big five and six bedroom homes when their kids moved away and they were going to downsize and buy a little condo in, in boca raton and what we're seeing is they're not they're, they're staying right. home. They're, they're buying the condo in Boca, but they still own their home. So now they take up two pieces of, of real estate. Um, we're just not seeing that that move down, you know, and depending on where you're at, California has some unique things that trap uh, boomers and and older people. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm 48. In 20 years, I'm going to be 68. And we look at that and like, where would I move? My my tax rate is based off of when I bought in 2003. Um, it makes it really, really hard. So we have some policy things that have locked owners in to their current homes. Um, and, and most people, you become emotionally attached to your home. Moving is a difficult decision. There are people that love moving, but for the most part, once you've set down roots, you've been somewhere for 10, 15, 20 years, it's easier to stay. And we're seeing that with the boomers. They're not selling in mass. So that volume of, of homes is not coming to the market for millennials to buy and builders aren't building them. So we have a really constrained supply market uh, right now. And we have a, a lot of demand. So affordability is eating into demand. You know, Jeb, you and I talk all the time about willing demand and able demand. Willing demand is to be anyone who says, yeah, I'd love to buy a home. Able demand is I have a down payment, I qualify, I've got good credit, I got a good job, all of that fun stuff. So able demand is shrinking, but 
supply is so much smaller than that is why we're still seeing home prices continue to appreciate even when affordability is at lower levels than we typically see. No, for sure. And, and, and I want to add to that because you mentioned the boomers. Right now, boomer wants to downsize, right? They bought a property back in, say, the 50s or 60s. It's a two-story property. They want to sell and buy a single-level property. You know, in the market that we're in, to buy that single-level property, because single levels are, are selling at a premium, right? Because they're one level, a lot of people want them. A lot of boomers want them. And, and other people want them for, for reasons as well. But the, the single level sell at a premium. So it's almost, you know, boomers look, I can sell my house for X, but I have to buy the, the smaller property that I want and pay a similar price. I'm paying more money for it. It just doesn't make sense financially to do it. Plus, you know, again, you know, here in California, you have the ability to transfer your tax rate and your tax rate stays low or whatever. Even in those situations, it just it, it doesn't make sense. So the boomers holding onto that property is one piece. But you only mentioned millennials, you know, in the in the in the buying pool, if you will. How about the move up buyers or the move down buyers, the people that aren't boomers that just, hey, you know, I need a smaller property. Kids are off at college. We don't need this big house anymore. We just we want to downsize or whatever. You've got those. You've got investors. You've got hedge funds. You've got overseas buyers. You've got all of these people playing a role in the home buying. And let's be honest, you know, the pandemic didn't create this, but the pandemic changed a couple of the rules that allowed people to do things that they've never been able to do before. Like if you had a job in, let's say, LA, and it was a great job, it was a job that you've worked your entire life for, you know, if you wanted to, live in LA and you couldn't afford to buy, you had to rent something. You didn't have any options. Now, stay at home, you know, the stay at home order allowed people to work from home. And a lot of companies have gone remote and and just changed the rules, if you will, on on how workers, you know, come come to work every day. And so now that person that lived in LA can say, you know what? This sucks. I hate driving this. The traffic sucks. Trust me, I just spent three hours in traffic in Santa Monica, so I can do a podcast on this thing in itself. But they can say, you know what? Let's go to Arizona. Similar climate for the most part, most of the year. Can buy a house for a third of what it cost here in Southern California. So now I can actually buy a property, keep my job. There's obviously some tax benefits, some things that are beneficial in living in, in a state like, say, Arizona or Idaho or any of these states that a lot of people are moving to. So all of that is playing into to the reason that supply is low. And, and that until supply changes, people, you're not going to see a housing market change. Right. And, and so I think that's what you need to think about. Don't think about, you know, the, the crash coming. Think about how is supply levels really going to change? Because if you can answer that question and you can, you know, figure it out, then, you know, maybe hesitate on, on, on buying. But until that changes, you're in a market that's going to continue to move sideways to up. And, and if we do see pullbacks, like we said, we see corrections. We don't see crashes. So, so Jeb, w with that, let's, let's kind of close here or move to wrapping it up yep. saying in 2022, we expect home prices to continue to go up. Interest rates are going to be elevated uh, relative to where they were the last few years. I don't believe they're likely to stay elevated. Um, don't know that they're going to go back to the all-time lows that we saw during the pandemic. Um, but interest rates will remain low and conducive to higher home values. Um, the supply-demand imbalance isn't going away. 
in in contrast to a crash or even a correction, um, you had mentioned very accurately that it would be more likely that the market trades sideways with you know zero to to three uh, percent annual appreciation uh, for an extended period of time versus seeing a crash due to the large volume of equity that homeowners have and the strength of the loan positions in there. So, if you're thinking of buying a home and we just kind of put to rest the notions that 2022 is gonna be some sort of a peak where you're risking your down payment, risking your credit, stepping in. What are the decisions? What are the things that you should be thinking about if you wanna buy in 2022? Well, one of them we talked about, we talked about job, right? I mean, location, if if you, I think if you're buying in this market, regardless of where you are, it doesn't matter if you're in Southern California or if you're in the Midwest or whatever, you've gotta have, a time horizon, right? I mean, and, and when I say by that, you've got to kind of have a plan, so to speak, in your head of, of how long you think you'll be there. And if you're thinking, hey, I'm just going to be here short term, I know that, you know, when when my wife finishes college, we're moving, like we're not going to stay here. That That's something that you need that, that should play a role in deciding whether or not you should buy a home. It's not always a great time to buy a home. But if you're going or if you're having that conversation with yourself or your spouse or whoever, and you're thinking that five, seven, 10 years is is probably the number that you want to shoot for to minimum to be in a house. I would say five years minimum, seven, 10 would be a great number. I think the average homeowner at the moment, Josh, is staying in their home eight or nine years, I believe. I mean, it's up from seven, I think, a year or two ago. So it's it's kind of moving along. Were you going to add something to that? My wife and I our this is our 19th year in our home yeah. we bought when we were 29 i expected we'd be there seven to ten years and move on it's 19 years and we've, we've talked here recently i'm unlikely to ever move i don't think i'm unique i mean one person doesn't make the case for it but i don't think i'm unique no and, and obviously california adds you know there, there's many factors that play into the reason that you would stay at this point and what have you but having that longer term time horizon i think is key Obviously, having some some excess capital, not stretching yourself, those are fundamentals that you have to have in place. But let's talk about some things outside of that, Josh, where you are in your life, right? Family. Let's let's talk about it. Age. Stability of of your family situation. You know, if you're in a relationship um, and and this doesn't... uh, for on, on the young end, you know, then you you may be single but looking to get married, um, and you don't know exactly where you're at. I don't think it's a good idea for most single people who could be getting married in the next two three years um, to just jump in and buy a home. That home may not be conducive to what the future spouse wants, um, the children coming along the line. If you've just got married, it's important to um, know what your family plan is. So really, all of this comes down to stability and what you said, Jeb, a five to seven year time horizon. You want to make sure if you're buying that. You don't have to stay there for five to seven years. You want to make sure you're buying something you could stay put for five to seven years if if things uh, necessitated that. And your family situation and that stability is important. You had talked about, Jeb, the job situation. Um, am I likely to get transferred somewhere else? Like this stuff is less common than it used to be with the portability of jobs and, and work from home. Um, but if if you think you might have to chase a better opportunity somewhere else, you don't want to be tied down with a home. Um, you know, if your job is just not stable, you don't know, hey, the company I work for is not that great. My industry is a dying industry. I don't know what that would be because the job market is so tight right now. But you want to make sure that your job situation looks good and your family situation is stable. Well, do you have any thoughts on that? 
No, I think you, I mean, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, it, it, those are the things that you want to think about, right? Home ownership isn't, isn't right for everyone, right? And if you're just tuning into this now, you're a first time home buyer, this is the first episode you've heard, go back and listen to episode one. We talk about why home ownership, right? And you can listen to that and decide whether or not it, it is right for you. And then if you're listening to this thinking, yeah, it's something I want to do, where do I start? Well, we're, you're in luck. So tune in next week, and we're going to actually talk about the process of starting. Where do you start in the process? Is it online? Do you talk to a realtor? Do you talk to a mortgage professional? Tune in next week where we discuss it. We appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.